My grandmother was devout and knew the Bible. She had read Genesis 47:15. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Our current problem is well established, even in ancient Egypt. Debased currencies fail. Governments cannot manage money. Adil, Neil, excited for another episode of Made You Think. Yeah, and we have some big, big news. There are no longer going to be tangents on Made You Think after the last episode where, where we spent more than half the time on tangents, even though people like them. But we're retiring tangents because we have a new co-host on this show, officially, officially. Thanks, guys. Excited to join. I will do my best to actually join the tangent train. And you guys can debase my, well... <laughs> I was going for a debased currency joke there, but <laughs> I'm sure we'll convert a deal to our off-topic ways over time. Yeah, he'll stop being adult supervision at some point. <laughs> but yes, so we we have shifted the plan and structure for the podcast going forward a little bit. So a deal is now joining permanently, which is awesome. We're super excited to have a deal on for all of them because this has been very fun doing the crypto libertarian style series and we're actually going to go ahead and end that series and go into a new focus where we're going to do this episode on end the fed we're going to do another episode in a few weeks on the revolt of the public which i don't know if you guys have finished it i finished it i thought it was fantastic it's i'm like book. uh about halfway through i love it it's so yeah. good so I'm excited to do that one. And then after that, we are going hard on a great book series. And this could be a five-year-plus project, but we've already been doing this for almost five years at this point. So you know, I, I think we, we've got the, the lindiness to, to justify that long of an endeavor. And we're primarily going to be working through the great books list compiled by Tommy Collison. So definitely check out his blog post and his write-up of great books. Uh, we're going to be starting with the Iliad and then going on to the Odyssey. And we're aiming for a show cadence of about three weeks. So there will be obviously modifications to that, but trying to get on a little bit more of a schedule and slowly work our way through uh, these great old books. So we're very excited for that. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. And yeah. it's kind of like the... I don't know if you guys did read any of these books in college. I never read most of the books on that list. So I'm pretty excited to go do that. Nat, I feel like you probably read some of them just in like philosophy classes and stuff. I like quote unquote read them. You know, it's like I, I turned all the pages and looked at all of them, but that doesn't mean that. <laughs> that's, that's what I. You can mark it as read on Goodreads, but like, yeah, you might not yeah. Have read. <laughs> that's what my that's what my sister always says about. She had a like a literature class at Harvard where they read Ulysses. And she always says, like, yeah, I read Ulysses. Like, I turned all the pages and looked at all of them, but I had no idea what the fuck is going on in that book. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I feel about some of these ones that I've already read. There are a few. I mean, so, some of the old books do read very easily. Aristotle is surprisingly readable. Seneca, obviously, we've done before. Uh, the Odyssey isn't isn't too bad, and I've started on the Iliad. It's it's not too bad either, actually. But I I, I actually feel like some of the old stuff now it's, now that it's been translated so many times and clarified, it's a lot easier to read. Whereas when we get to like continental philosophy and trying to read Kant, where that's going to be the hardest part. <laughs> so I think it'll be yeah. So some of the older good. older books are probably easier than some yeah, of the more modern yeah. modernish 
books. Yeah, I think so. Well, I, I was thinking about this recently too, where it's this question of why, why have some of these books lasted so long and why is there so little good modern philosophy? Right. And I guess if you did it on a, a, a pure year, like per year, the concentration is probably higher now, but there's less like, you know, world shifting stuff, I think that comes out. And it's kind of like the problem of science where there was like a lot more stuff to discover before, but you can't really like reinvent stoic philosophy or like, you know, virtue ethics or deontology or a lot of these things that were like deceptively simple ideas once somebody clarified them and said them. And then everything else has been kind of derivative or, you know, you've got like crazy epistemology shit. And so I think that's part of why some of these old books are so valuable too, is it's, it's just hard to compete with these original ideas anymore. The problem of specialization. So yeah, exactly. So deep down. Now, yeah. No. Yeah, also, I mean, these, these old books were written over a long period of time, too. Like, that's the other part that's easy to forget. It's like, oh, yeah, it was written, like, the 2000s BC or something, right? Or, like, it was written yeah. in, like... But it's, like, that's a whole millennium. Yeah. That's, like, between, the, <laughs> between like, year 1001 and 2000. Like, that's a lot of time. But when we just look at, like, a timeline, it's like, oh, yeah, that that happened in, like the fourth millennium BC or something. It's just like, we just gloss over how long of a period of time that actually is. Totally. It kind of makes you think about productivity a little differently too, right? Because how many, how many things actually last? And then how much did these people who made things that actually last actually do? And you look at somebody like Newton and he basically had the Principia Mathematica and he did that over, I think a few years in his twenties and then had, like very little else and spent most of his time on theology and alchemy. And so it was like 98% wasted time, like wasted, you know, like having fun exploring other things and then just like one, 2% extremely high value work. And then it's kind of like, all right, why are we optimizing our email processing rate? (laughs) (laughs) How do we, how do we get one principia level work done over the next 80 years of our lives? If we can do that, then I think we've done all right. But that's actually a great point. Yeah. It's like the local optimizations don't really matter. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it's like, if you can do one of those in your lifetime, you're an all time great. Like, I mean, he's an all time great. Totally. He's remembered how many, it's 500 years later, 400 years later or something at this point. Was yeah, he well like, known by his contemporaries? I think so. I think so. I think yeah. he was like a whatever I forget the title was, but it was like royal astronomer or something like that. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, he was. Of, yeah, he was knighted, wasn't he? He was. In I think so. It wasn't like yeah. a Van Gogh situation where it's yeah. like, yeah, no. when he's dead, then people respected him. But we can Google this right now. We got our. Well, I have the deal with googling. It. Yeah. You know what it reminds <laughs> me of, Neil? While you guys are looking that Clear. up, he was knighted. He was knighted. Yeah, he was knighted, right? Yeah. Uh, Remember when we reached out to Hofstadter about coming onto the podcast to yeah. talk about go to Lesher Bach? Yep. And his response was so funny where he was like, I have written a few other books since yeah. GEP. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't thrilled that we asked about that one. And he no, he wasn't. One of his other, he started pitching one of his newer books. He was like, I'd be yeah. happy to come on and talk about like this. Well, and I. <laughs> I, I really empathized with him because that's got to be really hard if your first book is the one that for the rest of your life, everybody like really focuses on and 
wants to talk to you about because then it's like this endless frustration of like how do i live up to my earlier self or and like that old. first work he's, yeah he's like his, he was in his like 70s i think when we reached out to me it's probably like a 40 year old book at that point yeah yeah i think he wrote it in his like late 20s early 30s yeah yeah. I mean, Nat, it would be like if you were in your 70s and someone was like, I don't know if podcasts will still be a thing when you're in your 70s, but like someone was like, hey, Nat, can you come on and talk about growth machine? Yeah. <laughs> like, and you're like, I've done a lot of other stuff since then. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, okay. So the book we're talking about today is oh, yeah. that thing. Adil, um, you're already failing. I know. This is the whole purpose of you being here. <laughs> um, the book is End the Fed by Ron Paul, which I had act- I'd read this book years ago and didn't remember it being all that good. And then this time when I read it, I mean, it's still like a book written by a politician. So it's not like it's not an incredible read in terms of like how it reads. But some of the things that he talked about and you look at when this book was written and you look at kind of like what's going on today with inflation and a lot of the other things, and you're like, damn, he saw this coming. Yeah. This was my first read, and I did not like it. I love the ideas in it. It was like a yeah. great... Uh, yeah, that's, like it doesn't read well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I ended up having to do all the legwork on <clears throat> Wikipedia and yeah. like my own time later. Uh, but it was a great way to figure out like what are the terms I should be Googling and what are the rabbit holes to go down. Yeah. I do like yeah. the last, like there's, it ends with this sort of like, well, there's also a couple things, which I'm sure we'll get into yeah. where there's like this two, there's sort of like two things he's advocating for in the same book. I think end the fed is like a more provocative title, yeah. which is where, which is probably why it's titled that. But like, like I didn't know this even before reading this book is like, we don't even audit the fed. Like we don't really know yeah. what it is that they're buying. And I didn't realize he'd co like him and Bernie Sanders had partnered on an audit the Fed bill. Like he introduced it in the House and Bernie Sanders introduced it in the Senate. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, but they partnered on that. And his, like, this whole idea of auditing the Fed, it's weird that anyone would be opposed to that. Yeah. Like it's such a simple thing. Like let's just see what they're doing. Did either of you yeah. look into why that failed? No. Did uh, you? I, I think that was like, there was like this whole thing about Ben Bernanke saying like it's very complicated and like we, like basically saying it's like too complicated for the public to understand. Well, I was also shocked that we don't even know like <clears throat> what's on their balance sheets. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Like, well, There's the a new one. Is- it's been reintroduced or it was reintroduced last year. Oh, interesting. By his son. I mean, it's probably more important now even because the balance sheet is so much bigger than what it was at that time. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it was really interesting. And the other thought that I had with this, just this whole idea, because I don't think the only thing we're going to talk about is the book. I think we're going to probably go into a couple other rabbit holes. It's like almost the tokenomics of the US dollar. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's like, it's very interesting. Like if you use that lens on it and then you're like, is this, you know, is this a currency? Is this going to be a rug pull? (laughs) (laughs) Inflate it all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Mission's too high. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing is that you can use it to buy a lot of stuff. That's the that's like the main that's the main yeah. value of it. But well, yeah. yeah so one insiders you know, one thing are, <laughs> there there is one like mental unlock that Ron Paul talks about in the book, and that I didn't totally understand until getting into crypto. Is we use these terms money and currency interchangeable. But they're conceptually different things where 
money is supposed to retain purchasing power over time. So if you have like money, that's essentially stored value or stored energy, right? Like it, we, we did civilization and energy, right? Or did uh, we, we just did. talk about yeah. doing it? Yeah, we did do it. Yeah, yeah. Like Smil talks about this a lot where like a lot of the purpose of money is to trade energy, right? Among civilization. And it, you need a strong money in order to retain value across borders, across time, all of that. And this is kind of the neat thing about gold is Taylor Pearson had a good article about this, about how we we think that like gold should be in a diversified portfolio as an inflation hedge. But across a human lifespan, it actually does rather poorly. It doesn't it doesn't provide that much of an inflation hedge compared to assets like real estate or stocks. But across currencies and across time, it does incredibly well. So if you had a bunch of gold from the year zero and held it until today, it would actually have surprisingly similar purchasing power, which is wild. And so what uh, what Ron Paul is talking about in the book and something crypto crowd harks on a lot is we think of the US dollar as money, but it's not. It's just a currency, which means it should be a very temporary tool for transferring value between people and should, you know, whenever possible be converted into a, a harder money. Uh, but ideally we could just get money, <laughs> right? Like we wouldn't have this sort of paper tool that is getting progressively debased by the government. And I, I, there's this mythology around the benefits of inflation, right? That if we have a, a fixed money where it's not slowly losing value over time. People won't spend it. They'll just hold on to it. And it's it's one of those interesting myths that is pretty pervasive in Western countries. And it's not really based on anything true or legitimate as far as I can tell. Right? It's it's yeah, not like... People still, have, people still have needs. Like they're yeah. still going to want to buy stuff. Like they're going to have kids. They need to buy like, you know, a bigger house or a bigger car or whatever. Like it's not like they won't spend money. No. If, the money is get yeah it's like people still like stuff and they people like stuff a lot more than they like watching numbers in a in an investment account go up right i mean this is why yeah. the savings rate is so low it, i mean when the when the fed did the stimulus uh, the stimmy checks i guess that wasn't the fed that was the government did the stimmy checks last year right like the i just had this moment of sadness because i drove by these kind of like low income housing developments in uh, Austin near my house. And there were a bunch of those like motorized, like mini cars for kids, you know, like abandoned in the street. And this was like five days after the stimmy checks got mailed out. And I'd like never seen these toys before. So it was very clear that like the checks went out and then everybody who like probably needed this money more than a lot of other people kind of just like, went out and immediately burned it on these toys that their kids then got bored of and like left in the street three days later. Right. And it's sort of like, okay, if inflation is actually pushing people to just like go out and waste their money instead of holding it in something that'll reserve value over time, like, are we really doing a good thing here? Yeah. He going back to your point on currency and, and money, like he brought up a good point near the end about, and I think, I think this is like a, uh, disagreement with what's in the constitution about money, yeah. but he wants to repeal uh, legal tender laws, 
where like only the dollar is legal tender. And then they, it, I think the constitution does say like gold and silver can be used as legal tender as well. But he was, he makes this whole case and it's in my highlights. And I think we'll get to it when we start getting more heavy on the crypto side of this. But he basically makes the case for like, there should be a free market of currencies and people should create currencies that compete with the dollar and that the strongest currency should, should win basically. Yeah. And it was, when I read that section, I was like, this is like the best argument for like all the different cryptocurrencies that have come up. And it's basically a free market for money. Like they all have different rules. They all have different tokenomics. And we're just kind of going to see which one's the strongest. The weird thing with a lot of this, though, is like that I feel like is true in a vacuum. But then you bring like the idea of like force and guns into all of this, right? Like which group has the guns and which group can enforce their laws. It's like, there is no Bitcoin army or like, you know, soul army. And it's hard to like the, it sounds bad to say, but like the dollar is probably one of the U S government's biggest weapons that they can use against other, other countries. And they're not just going to give that up like to a free market of currencies. Yeah. Like they're just going to freely say, okay, yeah, we're not going to use this biggest weapon that we have and tool of leverage we have over other countries. That was the other mental unlock for me, which was that the Supreme Court was instrumental in basically moving us away from what Ron Paul was calling as constitutional. So like he has this article oh, one, yeah. section 10 of yeah. the constitution, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, a tender and payment of debts. And he's just like, yeah, there it is crystal clear. And it just got eroded by the Supreme Court. So because of the necessary and proper clause where yeah. it says the government has can make any law that's ne- like necessary and proper for good rule or something like that. And as I understand it, it's like for the first uh, national bank, which was Hamilton's idea, uh, it was opposed by Madison and Jefferson. Yeah. And they used uh, Hamilton used that clause as his justification. And Jefferson and Madison were like, no, nothing, if it's not explicitly stated as a power of the government, it cannot be done. And that was their constitutional argument. But I think that's part of the issue is like, it's very easy for us to discuss and just be like, yeah, like the best idea will win. What's constitutional will win. And it's like, well, actually it's like the Supreme Court will decide and they tend to decide in favor of increased power to the federal government. And then armies will march. And that has nothing to do with like better or worse ideas. Right. Like generally that's actually one of my issues with, like, I really like Balaji's ideas, but one of my issues with a lot of his crypto state ideas and like, you know, how the state will be fractured into smaller and smaller groups and so on is just like, that's just not how power works. Like, like military yeah. power, military yeah. power is centralizing. So anything that any, like if you have a million Singapores and then you have a big army like the US in decline, those Singapores aren't going to stand a chance. Right. And whether it's through soft power or hard power, like yeah. they will, Might as well. they will have problems. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, so, Neil, to your point about military and dollar enforcement, there there is this challenge or I guess like consideration in crypto with creating stable coins, where one of the main reasons stable coins fail is if they don't have a, a clear and necessary utility. So a lot of projects will create new stable coins pegged to the dollar to try to compete with DAI or USDC or whatnot. But unless there is a specific market where that specific stablecoin has a lot of utility, it eventually falls out of circulation and often can have like a bank run, collapse, depeg, things like that. Like, so this was part of the issue with Luna 
was the one of the main utilities for UST was just to farm this 20% APR on Anchor Protocol. And once that seemed like it was going away, everybody started dumping their UST, which is what ended up causing the bank run that collapsed the whole system. So with like Tether, right, part of the reason Tether has remained so big and has, you know, at least so far been fairly stable is it's one of the main trading pairs on all of the exchanges, right? Like especially Bitfinex and Binance and whatnot. So it makes sense to hold Tether to do all of those trades. Uh, and so it has like a pretty big utility. And then USDC gets used in a lot of DeFi and whatnot. But we can use a similar argument for physical currencies, right? The reason that the US dollar has value and people want to hold on to it and trade it is like largely the oil trade, right? It's just like petrodollar uh, business where all oil trade has to happen in US dollars because of our deal with uh, OPEC and the Saudis and whatnot. So if that changes and then people don't need to hold as many dollars, you could actually have a national currency scale version of what happened with UST or happened with other stable coins once people don't have the same utility for them, which is kind of like an interesting and somewhat frightening thing to think about, right? Yeah, because I do think, I do think it's bigger than just oil. I mean, that is definitely the easiest one to point to because that's like what global prices are enforced in, but for oil, but then you do have like because of Russia, the sort of secondary market now developing that's not priced in dollars. It's, it's kind of weird that we did that to ourselves with the sanctions. It's kind of like eroded our own use case. And there's, yeah. you know, China and Russia are now trading in oil without using dollars as the intermediary. And I think Iran too, for sanction reasons. But no, I was saying the other value though is like, it is the legal tender of the biggest economy than, you know, the richest economy. And I don't think, are we still the richest economy? I actually don't know that. But one of the richest economies in the world. (laughs) And if you want to do business in the U.S., right, like that is how you pay a U.S. company is in dollars. Or a U.S. company will pay you. I mean, maybe they'll convert it to whatever your local currency is. But like to do business in the U.S., you're accepting dollars. Um, And then to pay taxes in the U.S., you're paying it in dollars. And I think that is like as a use case, also a big, a pretty strong one. Because they can, that's where it kind of comes back to the guns is like they can enforce that part of it for sure. Yeah. Because it's within their borders and they can say, okay, well, if you want to do business here, like this is the currency you have to use. So it's kind of like, I think Nat, you had written an article about tokenomics as part of your newsletter. And it was like, I forget the exact term you used, but the image that I have in my head is like of a, you need like a sink or like a use case for yeah. what that currency would be spent in. And yeah, yeah. I think the dollar does have, other, I mean, oil is a huge, like, massive one, but there are like other sinks as well. Like, even if it's just taxes and stuff like that. Yeah, and taxes are another good one, right? And like the fact that we still, it, I was having this thought throughout the last couple of weeks because like Dalio's book about America in decline is really good, and he talks a lot about how okay, America's kind of falling off, and and China's coming up, and so we're going to have this next transference of, of power. But the the thing that just didn't that doesn't totally make sense is even if the U.S. currency is debasing and if our government is you know becoming progressively more inept, everybody still wants to come here, right? Like you don't have tons of Americans lining up at the Chinese embassy to like leave and go there, but you do have the reverse, and so there's this question of 
like how do those two things make sense? And I, I think one interesting change that we're living through that didn't really get counted into Dalio's book, and I'd be curious to hear his thoughts on it, is that power might be shifting from countries to companies, where now the the, the next transference is into you know entities like Facebook and Apple and you know whoever builds like the ultimate metaverse or whatever and that's part of why america might actually be able to retain a certain amount of dominance longer than you know dalio's predictions might play out simply because this is where a lot of those companies happen to be and if they're using us dollars for everything then yeah you're right there's a continuing utility for us dollars purely to interface with those companies that also squares with the military discussion from earlier which is like those companies don't have their own militaries, but by using dollars and being in the United States, you basically have the same like might is right in addition to the treasury sink. Yeah, I think That's they true. could. I mean, I, I feel like if they needed to, they could spin up military resources fairly quickly, right? <laughs> they, like, I mean, they kind of do by proxy in some ways, right? Because it's like the biggest companies definitely get access to their country's military. Like, I think we, we might have covered this in the energy one. Or it might have been in another mm. oil book that I'd read. I think it was a different book, it was, but I mentioned it in that episode where throughout history, like oil companies have definitely used yeah. their country's militaries to get kind of resources that they want. Oh, yeah. Like a lot of the conflict between Iran and the US is related to removing a democratically elected leader who wanted to nationalize all the oil fields and kick out all the Western oil companies. And the US and the UK were like, nope, that's not happening. So yep. we're going we're gonna to depose this guy and reinstall the Shah who we like, who had just been overthrown. <laughs> and then, you know, of course they hate America after that. It's like the, the fish that ate the whale. With, uh, Zamuri tricking the CIA into invading Guatemala to remove the leader so that he could take over all the banana plantations. Right? <laughs> there, there's definitely versions of that happening on, on different scales. I mean, I, I think how insane it is that the... The U.S. government space program, NASA, can't put ships into orbit anymore. And the only real domestic resource we have for doing that is SpaceX. Like, space travel always seemed like the ultimate thing you would need a government-level organization for. But I think now what we're seeing is that... Because government is just a big company. Or it's, it's the biggest company. The USG is the biggest company in the world. Yeah. And now much smaller, nimbler companies are far exceeding their capabilities at providing different services. So, you know, SpaceX putting people on the moon uh, and Mars and everywhere else, Starlink potentially for communications networks, like Amazon finds the next level of logistics, right? Like we think about the, the interstate highway system as this incredible government project, which it was, but there haven't there hasn't really been any like massive people moving projects since then but amazon's logistics system is absolutely one of the most incredible domestic resource distribution projects like ever accomplished same with walmart right like those would have been government projects historically but now they're being taken over by companies I, i'm torn about how i feel about that because there is a rosy piece to like nasa and the 60s and all that but on the flip side nasa is an administrative organization which is smaller and basically any major government organization being a smaller administrative organization that oversees companies is something i generally prefer than things being done like in-house in the yeah. government and employing people directly 
uh, even though it loses a bit of that rosy charm. But I think the thing you're teasing at is that like it feels like NASA can't do it. It's being forced into an administrative role. It's not choosing to be administrators. Well, I think you know I, I have this conversation with my dad kind of often because I'm so cynical about the U.S. government and he's a lot more like optimistic and positive about it. And I think the era that we grew up in has such a huge impact on it where he was he was growing up in the 60s and 70s and just came off all of these highs right where the government did all these really legitimately incredible things and when we grew up it's like what did they do like okay they you know fucked the economy and then paid the bankers uh you know a thank you for fucking it they like got everybody in incredible student like crippling student loan debt right like destroyed the health of the population through terrible food policy like spent two trillion dollars in 20 years in the middle east accomplishing like jack shit right like it's just very different eras and so for me one of the things that i bias towards is companies seem to be much more capable at solving these big problems and so the, to your NASA point, a deal. I think a very motivated physicist or, you know, rocket engineer, whatever, would want to go work at a SpaceX or a Blue Origin more than they would want to go work at a NASA because the assumed level of competence is going to be higher. Way higher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Nat, to your point about the eras, um, there's a comedian that I like. He has an amazing podcast. Tim Dillon uh, is a oh, comedian. Yeah. And he had this bit uh, on this week's episode about Top Gun, and there was like a whole like news segment about how the military is baffled that like recruitment hasn't been higher this week and the couple weeks since Top Gun came out because apparently in the eighties it led to like a, a several thousand people above yeah, the yeah. normal rate. It's like a five X. <laughs> yeah, of like the normal rate in the eighties when it came out, and then today it was like there was no uptick during the uh, from Top Gun coming out, and it was like. The news segment had all these like interviews with like recruitment leaders of the military who were just like so surprised and baffled that like, we expect. And then they're like blaming things like, oh, well, it's Memorial Day weekend. So maybe people are just busy. They're going to come in during the week. And he's like, he's like, if you think about it, like in the 80s, all those people who signed up, like what ended up happening to them? He's like a bunch of them. Let's not dance around it. Have probably committed suicide by now. And the, the ones that haven't probably have PTSD. And like the government hasn't taken care of anybody in that world. And it's like, people are just, he's like, he was spinning it in like a positive way that people are like more aware now of what's going on than they were in the eighties. Yeah. Like the was, deal that they're getting. Like, did they, in the eighties, they view Vietnam as more of like an exception to the rule. I think they, so. Like, looked up probably. To the I mean, I think Vietnam was for a long time an exception to the rule because even like the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, right, was like very quick. We won very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then it was really the 2000s. I feel like the era that we grew up in where it became like even at the beginning, the the Iraq, like the Afghanistan war at the beginning was like 80 percent. I mean, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then it was really just like the few years after that, which that like. I wonder how long, like, it's hard to think about the timelines for this because we were kids at the time. But, like, to me, it felt like maybe after, like, a couple years, people were like, okay, well, like, this doesn't make sense. I think once the WMD stuff started coming out, that's when people really shifted their tone. And I've been thinking about this concept a lot recently, which is that these declines, like, these declines start when things feel the best, right? So... Mm the decline started with Vietnam probably or or a little before it, but it took us until the two thousands, right. To realize that it had been happening. 
because these things that seem like temporary blips were actually like the start of trend lines. It's the same thing where like the current recession, whatever that we're in right now started in November. But in November, we all felt the richest we'd ever been in our lives, right? <laughs> and it's it's really hard to like balance those two things where you know we everybody also felt super rich in May and there was still a long way to go until November. But when things felt the absolute best is is when like the downturn started. And so it's this like interesting challenge of like how do you how do you try to know when the euphoria is like the start of the decline or just like What's a the step on the it's, way to greater euphoria. <laughs> but it's the, flip, yeah. it's the flip side of that too, right? It's like yeah. the, the uptick will start when things feel the worst. Exactly. And it kind of goes back to the Warren Buffett thing, right? Where he's like invest when, or what is it? It's like invest when others are, or sell when others are being greedy and buy when, buy when everyone's fearful. fearful. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of like, yeah. I mean, that will definitely happen too, is like when everyone is like being the most pessimistic possible is when the uptick will start. Yeah. And everything will be priced in at that point. And this is the problem I have with the super pessimistic doomerism around all of this stuff is like countries are surprisingly resilient on five to 10 year timelines. I mean, you look at look at Japan coming out of World War II and just like how quickly they were able to rebuild like quite a lot and get the country back on track pretty quickly. I mean, you look at Germany coming out of World Wars, right? Like you, people look at a bit of inflation in the US right now and a like semi-clown government and think that we're going to need to like load up on guns and grow our own food and like retreat to the countryside. And it's like, how that doesn't make any sense. Like how could you possibly think things would get that bad that quickly when so many worse things have happened and countries and citizens have been like mostly okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I definitely uh, agree that there's way too much pessimism right now. Like I think more likely than not by a, by a long, a big margin, like we will figure it out. I think there's just like, even like the supply chain stuff, like, yeah, okay, we have this clown government, not even semi-clown government, <laughs> but that also, there's a mechanism for change on that. Yeah. Like, it's not like we're locked into this, it's not a monarchy that like we're locked into this unless we overthrow the whole government. And that's not, that's not how our system works. And our system does still have like this off ramp to figure this out. I think the pessimism feels worse now because it feels that the system is at fault. It's yeah. not, it's not mm-hmm. the specific clowns. It's that it's like, yes, the system it's the whole thing. Allows for clowns. Yes, that's yeah. true. That's for sure how people feel. Well, but there's I think definitely- even like supply chain stuff, Nat, it's like that part feels the most like, Oh, this is never like, at least I can say in, my, in our lifetime, until very recently, there was never like a time where I would go to the grocery store and fully expect something on my list to not be there. Yeah, like now yeah, it's just like yeah. normal where you just like go. It's like, okay, yeah, they didn't have, you know, apples today or like they were out of avocados or like, you know, now it's completely normal. I remember until very recently, it was just like, you just expected it all to be there. The yeah. That like creeps me out that, a little. That freaks people out, I think, when that happens. One of my favorite, there's a really good YouTube compilation of Ronald Reagan making jokes about the Soviet Union. And he would like end <laughs> speeches and he would just tell like one joke about the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't know how often he did it, but enough where there's a compilation of like a dozen or so. We should put and this in the show notes. I haven't seen it. <laughs> they're really funny. And it's just funny to see a president do this. And yeah. like, you know, at any rate, a lot of those jokes, like one of them is a guy goes to uh, buy an automobile and he goes to the dealership, he hands the guy his money, and then the guy says, okay, come back in seven years because that's how long it takes <laughs> in the Soviet Union. And then the guy is like, okay, great. Uh, when should I come? Like morning or afternoon? 
And the dealer says, well, it's seven years from now. Like, what does it matter? And the guy says, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. <laughs> but it's like, my dad bought a car last year and it took eight months. Yeah, yeah I mean, I just, got like, my, I just got the Tesla and I yeah. ordered it in December and it's the middle of June and it showed up now. When we break a household appliance or buy a couch, like my aunt bought a house and like it took her a year to fill it with her furniture. Yeah. And then I think back to those jokes and I was like, we're not like that. I guess I guess the one difference and what makes me more optimistic I've been like much more optimistic lately I think about how that we'll figure this out is like the big advantage here is that there is a lot of money in figuring it out yeah like mm-hmm. if you do figure it out like if you are the furniture company that can get people furniture in the yeah. next you know month instead of a year everyone's going to be buying from you yeah and well, you're going to make just so much money by solving one of these problems and you I almost- mean go-, go ahead go ahead I was going to say, going back to our discussion earlier about companies versus governments, this is the other reason that I'm kind of bullish on being able to get out of this quicker is we don't have to rely on the government to fix it. We right. can rely on, yeah, we can rely on Flexport and Amazon and companies like them to, you know, really iron this out. And it, it's sort of like I, my, my new voting policy is to just like vote split ballot. So do yeah. like, half Dems, half Republicans, because I basically just want like as much dysfunction as possible at the government <laughs> level so that companies can like do their thing and actually like fix all this shit without a like functioning government getting in the way. Good luck is good in this case. Yeah, totally. Really good. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think that's why Austin is so great is, and I think this is true for like a lot of these up and coming cities is having a liberal city in a Republican state creates so much just like general dysfunction that <laughs> it like creates a very good breeding ground for like individual and company freedom i think the it's funny angela and i have talked about like places to settle and one of the heuristics is like you want either a red area and a blue state or a blue area and a red state like another place that we've liked at least was like orange county it just feels like oh, things are like yeah. kind of mm-hmm. working there and i think it's because yeah. of that tension it's that like, same issue yeah, yeah like, the same difference yeah yeah I mean, they they were like one of the only areas in California where you could have a normal life during the pandemic. Yeah. Didn't they just like not obey the state law? Like, they yeah, just they like, were just like, fuck you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're going to yoga. We're drinking coffee. We're doing our thing. <laughs> Should we actually take a step back? And because this is the other thing about the book that I didn't realize before reading it is just actually what the Fed is. Yeah. Like, Are you doing my job? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you weren't gonna do it. So someone has yeah. to do it. <laughs> We've been waiting for you to do your job for thirty minutes. <laughs> <with> you, so. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, I think maybe we start with that because, yeah. like, yeah, because I think then there's a lot of like secondary effects that come along. How with How far that. back should we go? Should we start with the first bank? Yeah, we can start there. You're bank the of North America. Yeah, you're the agenda setter. Oh, don't, don't, don't put it on me now. <laughs> now man. You're back. Like, comes and hoops in the party <laughs> and then puts it on the new host. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how far back do we want to go? Do we want to go to the first bank, or we want to do uh, <laughs> we want to do the actual like the current Fed? We can do a quick overview of the first three, the okay. Bank of North America. So there are three. There are four systems before the Fed, which was the Bank of North America from 1781 to 85, which was very short lived the first bank of the United States, the second bank of the United States, and then the U.S. independent treasury system. I guess we can kind of gloss over the first three really briefly. There were Hamiltonian national banks, which basically meant they were similar to a central bank, but they couldn't do certain things, namely uh, 
They did not set monetary policy, they did not regulate private banks, they did not hold excess reserves, and they did not act as a lender of last resort. And did they still have the gold convertibility? Uh, that well, they, that was part of the reason that I think it was the second one was yeah. formed was, uh, or sorry, no, that's part of the reason the second one failed. And then we had the U.S. independent treasury system uh, was that a lot of the local banks stopped converting banknotes into back to gold. Um, and it was like this very embarrassing thing for the government. Let me and just... they couldn't buy uh, government bonds. That's another compared to the current Fed. That's another huge difference is that they couldn't monetize the U.S. government debt. Yeah. Because that does increase money supply. Just it's like, it's like anytime there's a treasury auction today, at least the Fed is buying a big portion of those treasuries. It's so like, yeah, some are foreign buyers, some are individuals, some are banks, but then the Fed is just buying with basically money out of thin air. I mean, for a lot of the first banks, uh, the treasury is actually owning more of them than they own of the Fed. They're owning like up to 60%, and the Fed owns, I, uh, owns like. No, sorry, not the Fed. The Treasury system, which was the last one, was only owned like 20% by the government. So of the actual Fed. Yeah, yeah. diminishing. This was before the Fed. Yeah. But yeah, so these they went back and forth across these three, basically between like the Jefferson-Madison camp, of it's not constitutional, and then the Hamilton camp. But incidentally, and I think this is one of my, like, this wasn't in the book, but it was one of my favorite things that I saw uh, in my research later, was the second national bank was actually started by Madison who was opposed to the first two yeah. because after the war of 1812, he needed a way to like finance his debts, which is so interesting. <laughs> Ron Paul's main gripe is like, yeah, <clears throat> banks are bad because they allow you to finance wars. It was literally after the war. Uh, but yeah, the thing that ended this was the panic of 1837, which was banks running out of hard money. They stopped doing the, con they stopped converting the notes and the government had no excess reserve, which was very embarrassing for the government because once the, uh, local banks stopped doing it, then you basically had like a run uh, on the bank. Yeah. On the bank. Yeah. And that led to the creation of the U.S. independent treasury system, which was basically a gold reserve held by the federal government, which was 1846. The Civil War changed things too, right? They issued a paper mm -hmm. currency yep. during the Civil War to, again, finance a war. Yep. Goes back to that. Yep. So they had the Panic of 1857 before that where there were no bank failures because of the government reserve. And then they depegged, depegged from the gold standard because of the Civil War and brought it back. Then they brought it back to a gold standard? Yeah. After, yeah. Let me see if I can find the quote. I don't know where it is. I just want to get to Jekyll Island. Je get to Jekyll Island. <laughs> yeah. That's next. But yeah, I think the Civil War thing is worth a minute, though, because yes, basically in order yeah. to pay off debts they moved off the gold standard and then hit deliberately went deflationary to get back onto the dollar standard, the gold standard. Why were we like, like so much more responsible? Yeah. <laughs> like, what happened? I, you know, I, I always have this thought reading certain things of history, right? Where like you look at George Washington, right? Like they won the revolutionary yeah. war and he, he could have been King of America. And he was like, no, like, that's the wrong thing to do like i'm gonna go farm and hang out with my family like good work guys like what a fucking chad right yeah. <laughs> I mean, like i just i feel like we don't see people like that today right or you've got yeah. the u.s government after the civil war they're like no like deflationary currency we're getting back to the gold standard like we're fixing this thing right? we're putting the guard back on ourselves like we're putting the the uh yeah, because it's basically like a guardrail for the government not to overexpand. Exactly. You would think, 
yeah, if you can well, it, get off of that, then you can get as big as you want. I think a lot of these things are a symptom of things have been like too good for too long. So you assume uh, that yeah. like an individual's behavior will not impact it. Like if you were yeah. in Washington, then you would know it's like, yeah, I could absolutely fuck shit up if I do the wrong thing. And I think the same thing actually goes, I had this thought a little earlier when we were discussing why people don't know the difference between money and currency. It's because they felt the same. Like we've never had an issue with our That's currency. That's a good point. But if you live from like 1810 through like 1880, you probably saw like eight different kinds of paper notes in your lifetime. So you would never trust a paper note, whereas right. we've only seen the dollar. Yeah, and the inflation, the note, rather, yeah. Right, right. And the inflation has been slow enough to not really feel it, right? To not totally feel the debasement, right? Like, talking to some people in crypto from Argentina, right? Their perceptive or their perception is just so different, right? Where as crypto started to become popular, it was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever because we can't trust our local currency and it's very hard to get US dollars. But yeah. if you could just like buy Bitcoin or whatever, and I feel bad because like there were a lot of people in like Argentina and Chile and stuff who were using Terra. So mm. I hope that <laughs> I hope that didn't get hit too hard by that because it's like, you know, just as bad as Wall Street debasing Argentina's currency. But there there was this element of like, because they didn't assume that their currency was also money, the value of an alternative, the, the value of a highly liquid hard money was much more apparent, where it's not apparent for US citizens in particular. You and I were talking about this, which is like one area, if you think of different sectors of crypto, sound money is actually underrated. Yeah. Yeah, in the States. yeah. Like I think it gets less attention than because it's not VC backed either. Right. It's like like Bitcoin doesn't have the same like people pumping and dumping. Yeah. Because, I mean, there are people pumping and dumping it, but it's not the same as like insiders of like a new coin or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not multi. Yeah, I think like the other thing that to your point about like people in other countries, like I know this is why uh, definitely like I mean, you can probably speak more to the Middle East uh, culture, but I know in, like in India, for example, they've had 10 percent plus inflation for like decades and they have a very heavy gold culture. Like hmm. even people who you wouldn't think can afford gold jewelry will like put their savings into gold jewelry and then it'll pass down through generations. Like if you if you're a woman like if you're you have a son, you basically give your gold jewelry to your son's wife mm-hmm. and then she does the same to when they have a son. So it's like yeah. families have gold jewelry that's gone down through like hundreds of years or maybe not hundreds but like you know probably at least like 100 years for like many generations. And that's kind of like where your family wealth is stored because you can't trust uh, like notes. Like it's just, I mean, they've done things over the years of just like, yeah, you have these, you know, thousand rupee notes. Well, that's not legal tender anymore. It's like the (laughs) turkey problem where all the turkeys, you almost need like a bit of like economic hormesis almost. It's like a little bit of pain would serve people like at least or incentivize you would would not take certain things for granted this like currency and money thing yeah i think like if we have this inflation problem for a few more years even like i don't think that assumption would be true anymore like people would not like even now people are probably starting to think about this as like different things yeah like currency and money it's like oh yeah that's a dollar but I know a dollar is not going to buy next month what it can buy right now. Yeah. Well, well I, when people view it as a currency issue rather than like a Joe Biden's inflation. Or like that's the other thing, inflation. too. It becomes yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If, if this continues political. for one more administration, yeah, then it won't necessarily be like as partisan because there are definitely like a lot of people that are just like, oh, this is a Joe Biden thing. I know we talked about this in another episode. Like this did not start with Joe Biden no. <laughs> at all. Like I, 
I don't, I'm not a big fan of the guy and like what his administration does, but I will say this is not his fault. I think people, this is not like, is, yeah, yeah, it goes back a ways. I, yeah. I Ron Paul wrote this book a long, like a, like at least 10 years ago, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to see a poll of how many people know, like, because I didn't know until I was at least 25, like, what the actual structure of the Fed was. I thought it was just like a branch of the government. Yeah, yeah. it's this weird, like, private organization. Like, yeah, but that it's is government strange. sponsored, and yeah. like, yeah, isn't it? It's like partially owned by banks, partially owned by the government. Yeah, and, and yeah, but it's just part of the terrain, which I think is why it's it's invisible. It's just been so omnipresent, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to actually fast forward a little bit to the Jekyll Island part because this ties oh, yeah, into what yeah. we're talking about. Neil's been talking about Jekyll Island. Since <laughs> yeah, because it's just <laughs> such an amazing like name for something that like, it, like, it couldn't invent something more sinister yeah. to like, start off the Fed. Jekyll Island. <laughs> so this is from the book where he says, by, no- by November 1910, the time was right for drafting the bill that would become the Federal Reserve Act. A secret meeting was convened at the coastal Georgia resort called the Jekyll Island Club, co-owned by J.P. Morgan himself. The press said it was a duck hunting expedition. Those who attended took elaborate steps to preserve their secrecy, but history recorded precisely who was there. John D. Rockefeller's man in the Senate, Nelson Aldrich, Morgan's senior partner, Henry Davison, German emigre and central banking advocate, Paul Warburg, National City Bank Vice President, Frank Venderlip, and NMC staffer, a. P. Andrew, who was also Assistant Secretary of the Treasury to President Taft. So we had two Rockefellers, two Morgans, one Kuhn, Loeb person, and one economist. In this group, we find the essence of the Fed. Powerful bankers with powerful government officials working together to have the nation's mo- money system serve their interests, justified by the economists there to provide the scientific gloss. It has been pretty much the same ever since. And so it's basically this like private public partnership that seems to benefit a few people those closest to the money supply and there's something called the cantalone effect which i saw in my research which is basically like um a lot of bitcoin people talk about this is that whoever's closest to the money printer benefits the most from the money printing yeah yeah and there's an article we can put in the in the show notes but well, this yeah, is it's basically like, like if you're close to the money printer, you're going to benefit and you're obviously going to be pro money printing because <laughs> you're doing very well from it. But the further you are from it, right? And like we see this, even though the US inflation is new-ish and like not that bad compared to some other parts of the world, you actually do see this. Like think about who would be most affected by the inflation. It's like people who are on like fixed income or people who work like even though retail jobs are paying more than they were, like... $15 an hour definitely doesn't buy what it used to two years ago. No. Um, so it's like people like that are the most hurt by it. And like weirdly people like us, I feel like are the least hurt by it because like our, uh, like we have more, we're probably closer to the money printer than people working like a retail job. We're not bankers, you know, we're not hedge fund managers, but it's, we are closer assets. to it. We're closer yeah. to it. And we have assets more than someone yeah. who's like a retailer. Yeah, uh, there there were two things on that that I was going to mention. One is definitely that aspect where if you have assets, inflation is almost good for you because the value of the things you're holding is at least maintaining while the purchasing power of the dollar is going down. And so your stuff is getting more valuable. But if if you're working and living paycheck to paycheck, 
then your life is getting like much worse. So it, it's it's just another thing in the series of stuff that's kind of like exacerbating income inequality and wealth inequality in the country, which is like you know frightening and concerning. And I think on the point about uh, the cancel on effect and helping bankers, there's also this aspect of uh, sort of like financialization and hidden risk in a like fiat based economy, which is partially caused by the Fed and by inflation, where if we had a true hard money that preserved its purchasing power over time, there wouldn't be that much need for 401ks or uh, like retirement plans because you wouldn't need to take risk to retain your purchasing power. Like the only reason that we need to hold a ton of index funds is because our the value of our money is getting inflated away. So we have to take on financial risk just to stay in place. But if you remove that, then you could just hold a hard asset like gold or Bitcoin or whatever and be set for retirement that way without having to take on risk. But banks obviously make a lot of money by convincing everyone they need 401ks where well, you know you give you kind of do. Yeah, and you do exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm saying, right? It's like they benefit so much from the money printer because, like, I'm sure everyone is feeling a bit of this right now. And like, I've been kind of stuck in this dilemma where it's like, okay, if you have a pile of cash, do you put it all into the market to protect it from inflation, or is the economy going like another couple legs lower, and so you want to hold on to it and eat the inflation cost so that you can like buy in later? You're, you're stuck in this like shitty yeah. situation, uh, but it's great for the banks because. With inflation, you want to park your money with them and then they get to like earn fees and sit on it for 40, 50 years since you don't have like that many other good options. Yeah, I think uh, related to all of this is also the idea of, um, and I completely agree with all that, but the other thing that this also ties to is size of government, which I didn't make the leap until reading this book. And I think that ties to the wars as well. It's like when you have the ability to print money, you don't have to make the choice of like, hey, we have $100, like, should we spend 10 on welfare and 20 on this war and 10 on this? It's like, well, we have $100, we can just make more and have yeah. like $150 if we need it. Um, and so you don't end up making hard choices for what is actually worth spending on and what isn't. And it's like, if we go get involved in another war, like, we don't actually see the direct cost. Like, there is a cost to us, obviously, th- paid through inflation in, in many ways and, and other ways as well. But it's not like we get an extra tax every time the U.S. government is like, hey, we want to get involved in this like new engagement, like Somalia recently. You're like, oh, we want to send a few hundred people there and do some missions there. It's like, if that got added to your tax bill separately as like a separate line item, more yeah. people would be like, is that worth like, you know, an extra $500 in my taxes or something? Yeah. Um, well, that, you would that at point- least think about the choice. But right now, you don't have to think about it. That point about funding war with fiat versus hard money, I thought was so interesting about how the structure of war changed with the introduction of fiat currencies, because you go back far enough and most like wars were the two sides would send their armies to meet and then there would be a like relatively small skirmish to establish, you know, which of the armies had more power. And then it would kind of like be over from there that you wouldn't have this like all out total war, like mass destruction uh, because it was like way too economically destructive, even for the attacker, right? Like it wasn't worth it. And for the defender, it would often be better to not like, you know, destroy your entire country's wealth trying to defend and just like, you know, submit, pay a tithe, whatever. 
And once we had this ability to just print unlimited amounts of money to fund war, we didn't have to call it early, right? Like we didn't have to stop because of like the economic cost of continuing. We could just like keep funneling more and more money into it and figure it out later. And that was like pretty interesting, I think, thought that I hadn't really heard before either before reading this book. But going back to the power conversation, right? Like, and this is being playing devil's advocate. If you think about it, like from a game theory perspective, like let's say you had 10 countries, nine of which had hard currencies and couldn't really fund like an indefinite war. And one of them was like, oh, we're going to do, or one country was like, we have a paper currency. We can fund this war forever. That's, you know, we're going to just take over the rest of the countries. Well, like, I guess and I know because any the, of those nine then, well, I guess then it's a game of chicken, right? It's like, does their currency collapse before exactly, the war? Yeah. If you can wait them down. out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, Zimbabwe can print more money, but that doesn't mean they're That's true. automatically That's a great win point. a war. That's actually a great point. It, yeah. There's it like, only works if the most powerful countries yes. are printing tons of money, right? <laughs> So it's like the U.S. can do this yeah, for a while and get away with point. it for a while. But I mean, to your point about like tech and companies like needing U.S. dollars, if companies start you know, switching to taking, you know, well, USDC is still dollars, right? But if they start taking all their payments in Bitcoin, I don't think this would ever happen. But it gets a lot harder for the U.S. to just like print money to fuel everything when there's no demand for that currency anymore. It's actually a good point. And it probably is a good reason for smaller, less powerful countries to adopt a hard currency. Totally. Actually, because no one's going to believe if like, I don't know, like El Salvador starts printing more currency. It's not it'll be like more like Zimbabwe, where it's just like, okay, yeah, you can print it. Does anybody want it? No. Yeah. But yeah. Whereas the dollar, like the U.S. government does have the like believability because there are all these use cases and it has the military power to back that up as well. And so that's actually a disincentive for a powerful country to have a hard currency. Well, I think that's why the IMF and the World Bank are kind of like intimidated or scared by El Salvador's like hype about using Bitcoin as a hard money. Because if it becomes sufficiently popular for countries to transition back to hard monies, then these bigger countries look worse and worse and their currencies look less and less stable and they reduce their economic power over the rest of the world, which they obviously don't want to do because it's sort of like aside from the physical force, economic force is like the biggest lever they have. There's a piece at the end where he's talking about like the ever increasing size of these bubbles because you have to print more and more money to get yourself out of each subsequent economic downturn. And the prediction being that eventually like, there will not be any amount of money enough to get you out. Like it'll just lead to the collapse of the dollar. I don't know enough to know whether that like makes sense from a, you know, I'm not an economist or a mathematician. But if that is the terminal node, then and then it introduces this like feeling of extreme, you know, extreme pain. I wonder if it will force the kind of like post Civil War austerity. And it's like, okay, we played this game. We allowed companies to get bigger and bigger by bolstering them when they were weak and should have actually gone out of business like we did with the banks and the airlines and the railroads and so on. And then eventually the entire thing collapsed in on itself. It feels like it gets closer. Like each it feels, time. Yeah. Each time, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, you, like during this past... can't form new banks anymore in the United States. Yeah, I mean, like, during, this past, during this past crisis, right, like it was... I mean, it's kind of quaint even seeing the numbers that he talks about for 2008. Yeah. For the bailout in 2008. It's like, oh, 700 billion was like printed out of thin air. And it's like, you look, compare that to what was done during COVID. And we're like talking multiple trillions during COVID. 
Like I think didn't the, we did this in a previous episode? It was like a four trillion dollar increase on the balance sheet. Forty percent of all U.S. dollars in existence yep. were printed in the last two years. Yeah. So it's like yeah, I see to your point. It's like yeah. it, it's like ever bigger and bigger. Yeah. It's like oh, so the next one, you know, is it you know thirty trillion that gets printed in the next one? Like, and then what does that do? I mean, I think this is point. where like the some of the crypto stuff is actually useful as a sandbox or playground for seeing yes, how yeah. these things play out and we've seen a lot of stable coins unravel now and there's a big difference and the, the biggest difference between the ones that unravel and the ones that don't is how collateralized they are because when when luna collapsed there was essentially no collateralization, right? There's nothing backing it besides the faith in, well, in the, the UST was backed by the faith in the Luna token. So once like that faith went away, there was no hard assets backing it. But there was another stablecoin crash a bit over a year ago, actually almost exactly a year ago, called Iron. And they had a very similar mechanism to Luna and UST. The main difference was, uh, so one Iron was pegged to one USD. And then Titan was like their Luna token. It was like the value of the ecosystem. And to create an iron uh, stablecoin, you needed 25 cents worth of Titan and 75 cents worth of USDC. So their stablecoin was 75% backed. And when their protocol melted down, the iron token only fell to 75 cents because there was hard collateral backing it. It didn't crash all the way to like you know, 10 cents or whatever that UST got down to. The, the the backing was much stronger, right? And then you look at a stable coin like DAI, which is over collateralized. There's something like 140%, you know, it's like a dollar and 40 cents of ETH, Bitcoin, whatever, backing every dollar of DAI. And DAI has been through like multiple terrible market crashes and meltdowns, and it's never failed in any significant way. It's incredibly resilient, right? And basically no other stable coin that's on chain can say that at this point. And so it's very clear that the amount of collateral significantly protects from when the like mythology behind a semi-fiat currency breaks down. And so then the question will be, you know, if the faith in the US dollar wanes, how much collateral is there actually in the system to back this thing? And how much of it is just like smoke and mirrors by the Fed? And that's going to really determine how bad the fallout is. Yeah. And I guess to your, to your point of like, what is the collateral? There's also the idea of, um, it's not called, oh, correlated assets, right? So it's like, you could say, okay, it's backed by the value of the US economy. But the value of the U.S. economy would be the aggregation of all the company valuations, real estate valuations. And all of that might actually be cor- probably, I would argue, is correlated to the size of the bubble as well. Totally. But it's like, you know, our mental peg for what, I don't know, a million dollar house is, it, it's based on this inflated bubble. And maybe that, you know, million dollar house is when things kind of go back down would be a $500,000 house. It's like, yeah, because all, the, because the, to each other, but and because fixed. the dollar, yeah. it's like kind of trying to define a system by itself. It's like that same, almost like weirdly go to Lesher Strange box loop. type. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because the value of the dollar is so tied to the value of these things that we think about. Yeah. And I think that's why it's hard even to think about like value of, of different cryptocurrencies sometimes where, you know, you say like, okay, what's the value of ETH or what's the value of Bitcoin? And it's like, well, we're valuing that in dollars which yeah. is another yeah. currency yeah. as well. It's like a ratio rather than a, 
an actual value. Well, this is something kind of that, nonsensical sometimes to even talk about. Yeah, I mean, this is something a lot of non-crypto people don't realize too, is that almost every crypto asset that's not one of the top 10 or 20 is actually priced in Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's not priced yeah. in dollars. And yeah. so when you see everything in the market dropping, not everything is not necessarily being sold, right. but Bitcoin and Ether are being sold. And since everything else is traded in terms of Bitcoins and Ether, then all of that necessarily drops as well. And so it's kind of like the inverse of the like money multiplier effect that you know we know from the banks where you can turn one dollar of you know dollars into like ten dollars of capital through the banks reloaning it out. But the more that continues, the worse this cascade can become when there is like a serious correction. So I, I think that's that's part of why you know we these booms and busts do seem to get like worse and worse over time. And it's why I have such a hard time with the situation we're in right now, where one part of me says, just because the last two crashes have been so bad and progressively worse, doesn't mean that this one has to be even worse than those. But then on the other hand, I'm like, it also kind of does have to be, <laughs> right? Like, we've wound this leverage up so much, like, how can the unraveling not continue to get worse? And I, I don't know how to you know, jive between those two stances. Is there an elegant way that the, I'm not saying this would happen, but is there like an elegant way that the Fed or the U.S. government could transition back to having some backing for the dollar? Like, do you see that being a scenario that's even remotely possible? I mean, they'd have to balance or, the Basically, the first, question right? is like, does it have to yeah. collapse? I guess my question is like, does it have to collapse? Or is there a way that they can like keep the party going longer Dude. by being like, oh, it's like one-tenth backed by gold or like, because especially China has been talking about backing their currency with gold, and they've been accumulating gold, and so is Russia. Very interesting. Weirdly, the ruble. Did you see this net that we talked yeah, about? Yeah, the ruble is going to be gold backed, right? And the value and the just immediately the rebounded. Yeah. yeah, the ruble has been the best performing currency of 2022. Incredible. <laughs> Despite all the sanctions and everything, it's like crazy. Yep. Does gold back mean like it's on a gold standard? Like it's. I don't know. I'm, obviously, it like it's more of an open-ended some, yeah, question. Like, what if it's like reserve? a basket of like yeah. crypto? I mean, I'm not. I don't think we're anywhere close to the U.S. government or the Fed adopting crypto uh, like as a backing for the U.S. dollar. But like, I'm just wondering: is it what are there things they can do to like keep the party going longer? Which I, I feel like they would figure out ways to keep the party going longer rather than let the whole thing collapse. Well, this yeah. is my my proposal or my idea, which <laughs> is the the government should do an economic draft. So. They should take. They should basically say, like, okay, because I mean, one of the big problems is that you have these politicians who get appointed to manage these two hundred, three hundred million dollar budgets who have no business experience, who have no business directing that amount of capital. So we do an economic draft where we rank all of the CEOs and entrepreneurs in the country based on the amount of capital they have managed in their lifetime and delegated effectively to create profitable businesses, and then. We basically say, okay, for the next six months, you have to split your time between your company and this government organization. And whatever cost savings you can create in this government organization, you get to keep 15, 20% of it. And Ooh. like, That's exciting. right? You and so, write, you should write an article about this. I, I think it's an incredible idea because yeah. we know, like politicians aren't going to fix this shit. They have no idea how to use money, right? Like they're not yeah. entrepreneurs, they're not business people, and so you need people who actually know how to use capital to go in and clean this shit up, right? And they would, you know, I mean, 
I, I'm, I'm sure if you let me loose in City Hall, you would realize, or like I'd be able to find at least 50% of costs that could be cut. And I'm like an idiot on most of this stuff, right? I'm not like that qualified. So if somebody like really qualified, run. <laughs> run running for mayor of right Austin, here. let's go. Right uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I actually think this is a good idea. Right. Like yeah. there needs to be some way yeah. to get people who actually know how to manage money into the system. And I mean, and unfortunately, honestly, the solution is probably to fire a ton of people and cut a ton of costs because the bloat is just insane. So I, I think there's something there, but it, it, there'd be no way for us to get back to any of these standards until we start paying the debt down, I think. Yeah. The sad rule of government is it only grows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no incentive to shrink. But no, but you yeah. just gave a couple examples, like weirdly in the past. Yeah, that it's drunk, right? That like, so yeah, it's like that's. I guess my question is like, yeah. is there a way we get back to that at any point, or is it like too far gone? I guess the the. I, the, I guess I meant more the uh, s- scope of the government's power only grows. Yeah, that I mean that yeah. for sure seems to be true yeah. over time. I, I guess the question is like, let's say the next bubble yeah. collapse or the be- next downturn is even worse than this, like like the amount that the balance sheet has to grow is yeah. even greater than COVID. Like at that point, I don't know if the system could handle that in the status quo. Like yeah. things could collapse really much, even way worse than they are right now. I mean, things haven't collapsed that far today. Like no. it's pretty, it's a pretty well, benign don't, collapse. The big we don't know where we are in the collapse. Right. We don't know. Exactly. Are we at the yeah, beginning? Yeah. We could just be at the beginning. Yeah. Let's or just, we could be at the end. It's very hard to know. Like in, in 2008, like it took a while for, was 2008 Lehman? Like it took a while for, yeah those yeah. banks start to blow up, right? Like, I think yeah. it took six, I mean, eight, Bear nine Stearns months. Was, Bear Stearns so. was, I think, 2007 even. Mm-hmm. And then it, 2008 is when the rest of the system yeah. collapsed. Like, that was so, like a warning sign. That, that's kind of the question. is, sorry, And we, we haven't had a big thing collapse. Like, n- nothing yeah. that bad. I guess, I guess Luna actually counts. It was $60 billion. It's almost an Enron. So it's like a lot. Yeah. But uh, that almost feels a little isolated. It feels separate, right? The real question is, are any I mean so one one thing that I've been hearing more about is this like consumer debt crisis where people who are maxed out on credit cards are signing up for like a firm and buy now pay later apps and if all of that starts to collapse and unwind then what are kind of the systemic effects of that that could be really bad but we haven't seen anything explode yet so is that still coming or are we going to be spared from a, a sector collapsing yeah, I think the, the, I know we are all running up on time uh, here, but I know the other thing I'm bullish on too over the next few years, at least, is uh, like parallel economies a little bit, mm. like people maybe transacting in other currencies. And like I actually saw this guy who he didn't he has nothing to do with Bitcoin, like he's not a crypto person at all, yeah. but he had to like t- he had to pay someone in another country, and he was like live tweeting how hard it was to figure out how to do this. And it was in some country that has like I think some they're somehow affected, maybe Moldova or something. They're yeah. somehow like affected by the sanctions. And he's not even a U.S. person, but he has like a U.S., like some tie to the U.S. through like a business or something. And he was like, oh, he's like, I actually see the value of Bitcoin now. And he was like, I used to shit on this all the time, but I was able to pay this person using Bitcoin. They converted it to their local currency and they're happy and I'm happy. And then he, because of that, he like kind of fully converted. He's like, if you pay, he's like, if you pay my business in any cryptocurrency, I'm going to give you a 10% discount from here on out. And it's like, I think we'll see more and more stuff like that over time of like people just, I don't think the whole economy will will shift to this. I'm still actually pretty solid on the dollar, 
But I think people will look for like alternatives more than they ever used to because we took it all for granted that like the yeah. dollar was safe. I also wonder if we do the central bank digital currency. Yeah, that's oh, what I was about to say. What, once the U.S. government realizes how insane of a currency control they can have with uh, CBDC, like they're going to be all in on that because yeah. it, it's an incredibly powerful tool for an authoritarian leading government. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we crypto crypto basically built the antithesis to crypto uh, a completely legible fully controllable uh, government backed digital currency that can just blacklist anybody who you know violates the rules of the thought police it's great very tweets the wrong thing yeah exactly yeah your your <laughs> usdc balance has been docked 10 percent for making a clown <laughs> restricted meme. for 48 hours because exactly you like Nat's tweet. <laughs> <laughs> we saw what you texted a deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I got to go, guys. I got to hop on the okay. call. Uh, All right. On that note. We'll do Revolt of the Public in three weeks. Yeah. And deal. very excited that you are yeah. permanently joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a nice review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are sold. And someone send that a good message. I feel bad. Yeah, everybody sends all the nice messages to Neil. <laughs> I feel very <laughs> left out. <laughs> or send the deal the, the nice messages to Yeah, or send them to a deal. <laughs> For some reason, people think Matt doesn't want to hear from people. So. I know. I guess I am kind of just like a, a grumpy person on social media sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, maybe I should be nicer. <laughs> well, I think it, it, it could be too that like, you have so many more followers. People probably think it gets lost in the noise too. Yeah, yeah, that also could be the case. That could be it too. Yeah. Like he won't see it. Well, Neil and I have fewer followers, so yeah. if you want to send something nice, then we're DMs are open. Yeah. <laughs> Contribute to Nat's city council campaign. Yeah, exactly. Well. Vote for me for mayor of Austin. <laughs> <laughs> we're joking, but I feel like we're only a few episodes away from Nat actually announcing this. Like, five, like by the way, I actually to... opened up my new campaign. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to run, but I want to put a team together because you actually need like 13 people to control Austin. So we need to get people to we need to get the right people to move into the different into the different neighborhoods so that we can take over all of city council Uh, because we need city. We need all 11 seats on city council. (laughs) Hopefully none of your opponents listen to made you think. (laughs) Doesn't matter. They'll they will be helpless against the power of our against the strategy. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, they won't know what's coming. Plus, these guys don't know how to use the internet. Like they're old. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. See you next time. On that note. Bye. See you guys.